Conversations. Hey everybody, welcome to Crooked Conversations. I'm John Lovett. I want to introduce the host of this week's Crooked Conversation, Rabbi Sharon Browse is in the house. Uh, she serves <laughs> as the senior rabbi at Ikar, a Jewish congregation here in Los Angeles. Welcome. Thank you. I'm impressed you pronounce both Browse and Ikar correctly, so we're already off to a good start. Well, I will be lying to say that I hadn't <laughs> prepared in my mind browsing the house uh (laughs) it's why i had to say it in full uh you talked to eric ward the executive director of western states center can you tell us a little bit about what this conversation entails so eric is an absolutely fascinating guy he's an african-american man who several years ago embedded with white nationalists in order to learn more about the aryan nation and about this attempt to kind of militarize and ultimately create a, a, a white ethnic state here in the U.S. And so, and the reason that they allowed him to a, entry into their um, community is because they said, we share the same common enemy, the Jew. And he came to understand that that at the heart of white nationalism is anti-Semitism, which is something that I think even a lot of Jews don't understand. And so he's really spent the last couple of years traveling around the country, talking to Jews and non-Jews alike about the dangers of anti-Semitism, not only to individual Jews and to Jewish communities, but also to democracy. Because what we know to be true about anti-Semitism is that historically it's been used to undermine movements for social justice, that there's this sense that if there's a Jewish puppet master that's um, controlling all of the mechanisms of the economy, of government, of film, you know, Hollywood, then the rest of us are essentially powerless against this kind of monster. And so mm-hmm. we we stop fighting back against authoritarianism. And it's a really compelling and, and important message, I think, for us in this moment. It's something most of us don't really have a deep understanding of. And do you think that there's something about what's happening right now that has led to an increase in anti-Semitic attacks? Is there, is there, what is that, what are you seeing that you think is making you specifically worried now? Well, of course, this has been going on across Europe for the past couple of decades, but in the United States in the last three years, really since the campaign leading up to 2016 elections, there's been a spike in anti-Semitic attacks here. And at first it seemed like they were individual acts of vandalism that were being committed by people who were probably fueled and inspired by the rhetoric that was coming from the top down. I mean, the the complete unwillingness of the president of the United States to, to be able to unequivocally condemn Nazis is something that was unheard of, you know, in this country before. And so we see that as there's more permission being given to anti-Semitic ideology, that not only is there an increase in incidents of anti-Semitism, including vandalism and acts of violence, really culminating in the Pittsburgh massacre from a couple of months ago, but also it seems like there's a collective uh, lifting up of this ideology, which is now infecting really the whole culture, not only on the right, but also on the left, which is sadly, you know, where many American Jews find our political home. So most American Jews are progressive. Most American Jews vote Democratic. And so it's it's a different kind of pain when you see anti-Semitism emerging in the spaces that we consider to be 
um, really our spiritual and political homes than, than when you see it emerge from people who you only see on, you know, documentaries about the Aryan nation, people who, you know, live far away and dress in camouflage and are stockpiling weapons. That's that's scary. It's really different when it's coming from our friends and our neighbors and the people that we go out to protest with and for. Um, it feels like a different kind of, of hurt to, to the Jewish body. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Rabbi Browse, for uh, having this conversation. It is Thank a fascinating, you. important conversation to have right now. Let's get to it. Eric, thank you so much uh, for being here today, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I wonder if we can start by you just telling us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the conversation around anti-Semitism in America today. My name is Eric Ward, and I'm the executive director of Western State Center, which is a regional capacity building and leadership development organization based out of Portland, Oregon. And we work in the Pacific Northwest and mountain states to expand democracy by strengthening racial and gender justice. I I started grappling with anti-Semitism in the early 90s. I was a community organizer, uh, grassroots leader in Oregon at the time. And the Pacific Northwest and mountain states were dealing with a movement uh, that called itself white nationalist. And at the time, it revolved around an organization called the Aryan Nations based out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And they were attempting to turn some states in the Pacific Northwest and the Northwest into what they called an Aryan homeland. Now, that was never going to happen, but they created a lot of violence, including uh, murders, including the assassination and, and murder of a radio talk show host by the name of Alan Berg, armored car robberies, and also uh, a rash of hate crimes. And so a number of us came together in rural and urban areas to figure out how we drew a clear moral barrier against hate. As we were understanding and watching this unfold, we began to see these hate groups, as they were called, engage in propaganda through radio shows, uh, through posters. And while they attacked African-Americans, immigrants, gays and lesbians, and others, we always noticed that those attacks were coupled with an accusation that civil rights, gay and lesbian rights, feminism were part of a Jewish plot. So at the end of the day, I came to understand and to look at anti-Semitism because we were trying to understand this social movement called white nationalism, which was attempting to shrink democratic space in the Pacific Northwest and, and mountain states. You know, I remember right after Charlottesville happened, just the sense of of great confusion across the country about what was actually going on there. It seemed like this group of white nationalists had gone down to Charlottesville to protest the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee, and they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. And I think people had no idea why they were saying that or what that meant. And I even remember hearing on some of the news networks, they said, these protests are, ch are chanting, you will not replace us. And I thought, no, they're not. They're chanting, Jews will not replace us. But even I didn't know why. And and you knew why. And so I, I wonder if you can frame for us a little bit about what 
what you saw and understood that was actually happening in that moment based on what you learned from studying the Aryan nations? Certainly. When we get to Charlottesville and what we call kind of the the maturing of the alt-right coalition, and when I mean alt-right, what I mean is that there is a diversity of politically right aligned organizations and movements that coalesce. But at the core of that broad coalition are white nationalist leaders and, and organizers who have a specific ideology around the idea of a white-only ethnic state. This is distinct from the history of white supremacy in the United States, slavery, the genocide of Native people, the control of women's sexuality. If white supremacy is about a system of exploitation and inequality, white nationalism is about the removal of people of color altogether. And within the white nationalist framework, it holds this belief that the United States has been taken over, not by an increase or strengthening of the democratic process through the civil rights movement, through the expansion of rights uh, for gays and lesbians. No, no. In fact, what the white nationalist movement argues is that the United States has actually lost its white centrality due to what they believe is a Jewish conspiracy. The idea that there is this almost supernatural conspiracy of Jewish elite or elders, as they call them, who are secretly pulling the mechanism of people of color, of feminists, and and others. It is a dangerous belief in the sense that it creates this idea of an existential war uh, between what they see as good and evil and Jews being the ultimate evil. When you understand that and you watch the rise of the white nationalist movement in concert with the rise of Trumpism in America, what you begin to see is an articulation of that anti-Semitism within the alt-right coalition. So it was not a surprise to hear Jews would not, will not replace us. But for those who are not coded in to the dog whistle of anti-Semitism, it was quite confusing. In some media, it took over 24 hours to 48 hours for them to understand that they still were not hearing yous will not replace us. If we remember the early reporting, most media was not reporting it as an anti-Semitic chant. And that tells us a little bit about how unaddressed anti-Semitism is in American society. Right, right. I, I remember you writing about your understanding that anti-Semitism is the beating heart of the white nationalist movement, which is something I think most Americans are simply unaware of until you're writing, frankly, of the last couple of years. I, I think for for many Americans, it is a, a new conversation, as, as you know, and I think you can also describe this conversation in in all actuality, most Americans believe that anti-Semitism is something from the past, um, that it is no longer a significant equation in American life or even in, in global life. Uh, 
Um, and so when we were confronted with the specter of, of anti-Semitism, I believe we were left unequipped with how to respond. I remember getting phone calls and emails from Jewish leaders um, asking to help them think through, right, their own thoughts about what was happening. I think one of the saddest things that, and surrounding uh, the anti-Semitism in Charlottesville is that we actually didn't hear from the Jewish community. The media didn't turn to the Jewish community immediately to try to understand how it had impacted uh, the Jewish community. And we still haven't heard, um, and there still hasn't been space to hear from Jewish voices what this moment feels like and, and what it looks like now. It's so interesting. It seems to me that there's a, a way, the way in which we understand anti-Semitism in America today is it's not perceived to be systemic or structural. It seems like it's perceived to be about individual bad actors engaging in individual bad acts. And there's this effort from a, a number of people over the course of the last few years to instead reframe the conversation around anti-Semitism as something much bigger and much um, older than, you know, the appearance of a swastika on a synagogue in, you know, in a small town somewhere in the United States or a random, uh, you know, a random slur shouted at a, at a Jew who's crossing the street or even an act of an act of violence. But now instead for us to understand this as a form of ideological oppression that's rooted in very old systems that that suppressed and oppressed the Jewish community, some of which still persist even in this place and in this time. And how is that conversation being reflected in, in the Jewish community? What concerns are being lifted up? How much fear is in the Jewish community currently? Well, I think this, there, this sense of vulnerability that I'm experiencing a, a, as a rabbi working with not only my community in Los Angeles, but also traveling around the country and speaking in a lot of different synagogue communities um, this, the sense of vulnerability is taking a lot of people by surprise because, frankly, I think that many Jews felt increasingly comfortable and safe in this country in this time. And it wasn't until a few years ago when we started to see really a spike in anti-Semitic incidents that many Jews began to feel that it was unraveling a little bit. So we both walk around with, as as one of my teachers, Rabbi Harold Schulweiss, used to say, the Holocaust is the dominant psychic reality for many Jews. It doesn't matter how many generations have passed. It doesn't matter if you're a descendant of survivors. It doesn't matter if you're Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, if your family descended from areas that the Nazis conquered or not. It's part of the psychic reality for the Jew. And that is true. And even still, I think there was a very profound sense of safety and security and a feeling that America's really different. And I've seen that begin to really unravel over the course of the last couple of years. And it's, it's really frightening because I can imagine that it feels both uh, shocking and, and, and isolating. I, I often, you know, think that you know, the go-to is to compare 
one form of discrimination with another form of discrimination. That's how we come to understand systemic discrimination. And sometimes we forget that um, forms of inequality have their own distinct makeups. So one of the, you know, unexpected outcomes of anti-black racism in America is that it makes other people of color invisible. Anti-black racism sets up this black and white paradigm in American society that forces individuals and communities to choose one or the other, um, or to be primarily invisible um, through most um, conversations around race. Now, that's not the fault of black people. That is structural inequality. As an African-American, one of the things that frightens me most about our misunderstanding of anti-Semitism is one of its unique factors. And its unique factor is that, at least in the modern era, anti-Semitism has been used to deconstruct democracy. It has been used to take what is a complex, nuanced system of, of governance and to winnow it down into the idea that whatever an individual does doesn't matter, that those who advocate for equality or an expansion of democracy um, have no real agency and are merely puppets. It feeds the idea that there is some secret conspiracy that becomes kind of a unified theory uh, that says ultimately what we do doesn't matter in a democracy because we are merely puppets of this larger conspiracy. It is um, not much different than when the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was created um, in the 1800s and distributed to in an attempt to feed anxiety around French democracy and to feed anti-Semitism around the trial of a French military officer who was of Jewish descent and had converted to Christianity. It is the protocols that were then used in Russia um, as the czar collapsed. Um, and it is the same unified theory that was used in Nazi Germany. The idea that there are a secret elite who we don't know, who are framed as Jewish, who are secretly working to enslave all of us through the modernism and through dem democratic practice itself. And as an African-American, what frightens me, again, is this idea that non-Jews do not understand that we may be at more threat of anti-Semitism than even perhaps the Jewish community itself. We'll be right back with more of this conversation between Rabbi Browse and Eric Ward. It's fascinating. Uh, stick around. Article is an online-only furniture company. By eliminating the layers of traditional retail, Article is able to keep prices low and quality high. No showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. This is beautiful, well-made furniture. Scandinavian simplicity. Beautifully designed modern furniture. Article is serious about shipping. No matter how many items, every order is shipped at a flat rate of 49 bucks. That's good. Shipping and furniture can run you a lot of cash. Article has really great stuff. 
I recently was just buying some furniture from my house. I have a bunch of stuff from Article outside in my house. I got a bunch of, um, they have really good outdoor chairs that were really cool. They also have these really nice benches and they have really cool colors. Like the colors of the furniture, there were really good options. It was really hard to pick. We have some Article furniture in the office. We do. We have some uh, beautiful yellow chairs that are comfortable. They're great. Yeah. We have some great um, uh, like like lounge chairs toward the back of the office that are really comfortable. Yeah. Love Article we here. We love Article. Media. And if you need some help getting set up, Article has options for in-room delivery and for assembly assistance, which I always need. John needs it. I like putting together furniture sometimes. Got my uh, other things to do with my time. I like, I enjoy, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy some, um, some, some, some using my hands. You know, sometimes I think we got this epidemic of ADHD, but really what we do is have an epidemic of kids who want to use their hands to think. Use them to put together Not furniture from Article. Not Articles. just their words, but their hands and their minds together. Article's offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash cricket, and the discount will be automatically applied to checkout. That's article.com slash cricket to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Go get some furniture. The only thing you'll have to decide, like, do you want a beautiful navy blue chair? Do you want a beautiful persimmon pillow? Do you want a beautiful green bench? You know? These are the choices you'll face. End of ad. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Simply Safe. Here's something interesting. Studies show that security systems deter burglars. It's a fact. But there's still a burglary every 8 seconds in America. How? I don't I think it's obvious how. There's a lot of houses that don't have them. And even, you know, right? Well, think about it. It says here, do burglars give up just because some houses have security systems? They just find a house that isn't protected, as you obviously surmised. That's why securing your home is a necessity. So let me recommend a security system built by Simply Safe. I have Simply Safe in my place and I really like it. Simply Safe believes fear has no place in a place like home. So they made their system ridiculously smart. Simply Safe sensors protect every point of access to your home, doors, windows, garage, you name it. If a burglar even tries to break in, an ear-shattering siren will let them know the police are already on the way. Simply Safe's 24/7 monitoring is just 14.99 a month and they'll never lock you into a long-term contract. More than 3 million people already know it feels good to fear less with Simply Safe. So go with the only home security system we trust, Simply Safe, going to simplysafe.com/crookedconvos today. That's simplysafe.com/crookedconvos for the home security you can trust, simplysafe.com/crookedconvos. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer car-sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Available in over 5,500 cities across the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Germany, with more than 9 million users worldwide. Way better than a rental car. That's their tagline. How is Turo better than other car sharing or car rental options? You can choose the best car for you, often at a lower cost than traditional car rental agencies. You can customize your experience for whatever your adventure demands. Over 850 plus unique makes and models are available. Tesla, Porsche, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari. Holy shit. What are you, renting a car to have a midlife crisis for the weekend? You know what I mean? <laughs> Subaru, a little more sensible. Calm down, you know? Calm down, come down from that Ferrari to a Subaru, Toyota, and more. Whether it's a truck to help on moving day, a swishy sports car for a luxurious weekend away, or a vintage van for a picture-perfect road trip, Turo lets you find the perfect vehicle for your next adventure. More than 350,000 vehicles are listed globally. Many hosts offer to deliver the car right to you. Insurance options are available on every trip. Skip the rental counter with Turo. 
Download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play or visit Turo.com. Listeners will get $25 off their first trip when they sign up for Turo and use promo code CONVOS at checkout. That's T-U-R-O at the App Store. Use the promo code CONVOS at checkout. Terms apply. This is so important for us, and I feel we don't talk about this enough. Um, the the use of this Soros mythology, the the globalist conspiracy, what that means, and who that actually harms. And I think what's so important about what you're saying is that this, which is actually a very old form of anti-Semitism that's been manifesting, especially over the last few years, um, once again, is really dangerous, not only for Jews, because, yes, there are actual, you know, people who, first of all, bombs actually sent to the homes of some of those prominent Jews who are named in these conspiracy theories, but also people who pick up guns and walk into synagogues and murder people who are at prayer, but also because these mythologies and these um, these conspiracy theories end up undermining democracy. If there is a puppet master, then everyone else is a puppet, right? And so our behavior is actually it, it, the behavior of the just the regular person op- trying to operate in democratic society is essentially meaningless if ultimately there's somebody who's pulling the strings and controlling the broader mechanisms of that society. And that's something I really don't think that most people at this point are having an honest conversation about. Let me ask another question. Recently, new data coming out of New York City shows that anti-Semitism is on the rise for the second year in a row, and that uh, the most significant number of hate crimes that are occurring in New York City actually target either Jewish institutions um, or Jewish individuals themselves. I'm curious, in light of the fact that we often talk about anti-Semitism on the right, or anti-Semitism merely being a political uh, tool of the right, how we come to terms and how the Jewish community is talking about the high level of hate crimes that appear to not be manifested by the political right in New York City. Yeah, I think this is a really important conversation and a very challenging one for the Jewish community. Um, It seems to me that the established Jewish community is very quick to respond to and call out anti-Semitism when it comes from the left um, and very resistant to calling it out when it comes from the right. This is a hard thing for us to understand, but it's not actually about anti-Semitism sometimes, that sometimes what people are very vigilant about is whether or not a person who's saying anti-Semitic words will ultimately come down in support of Israel or as a critic of Israel. And so in many ways, the established Jewish community is far more critical of anti-Semitism on the left. And exactly the inverse is a real problem um, when it comes to progressive Jews, Jews who come from the left, who are much more comfortable attacking and calling out anti-Semitism when it comes from the right and very resistant to calling it out when it comes from the left. And and actually, what I am increasingly concerned about is that what's happening is there's a kind of 
widespread normalization of anti-Semitism now on both the right and the left. And even though I believe that there's a far greater physical threat to the Jewish people coming from the armed and state-supported right in this case, um, the the lack of care toward anti-Semitism, the lack of seriousness with which it's addressed on the left, and the willingness to either engage in it or to justify and excuse it on the left, um, or in some ways to er erase it or ignore it, is actually creating an environment in which anti-Semitism has become normalized and people are not um, as attentive to this, uh, the danger of this ideology, which previously, at least in the U.S., had been fairly marginal. So in Europe, this hasn't been the case. We've seen now, you know, trending over the last many years in, in Europe, an increase in anti-Semitism. Um, really, I'd say in the last 20 years, even just in the last couple of days, there were a number of British members of parliament who left the Labour Party because they claimed that it was um, institutionally anti-Semitic. We, we know that French authorities are reporting this incredible increase in anti-Semitic incidents over the last couple of years, but really over the last couple of decades. Um, and it seems that now what's happening is that in the United States with the spike in anti-Semitism, even though most of the violent uh, anti-Semitic attacks are actually coming from the right, there is a kind of ease with or comfort with anti-Semitism or an ease with um, excusing anti-Semitism perhaps as a way of whitewashing Israeli government policy or something. There, there's a sense that we can ignore claims of anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism isn't really a real threat. And in some ways, our own community has been has been part of that, both by from those who are on the right um, uh, really excusing uh, anti-Semitism on the right and from those who are on the left excusing anti-Semitism on the left. And it seems to me that we've got to enter a different kind of era right now in which we're very clear that, you know, as I think I've heard you say, that the problem isn't does the anti-Semitism originate from the right or the left. The problem is that it's anti-Semitism. And wherever it comes from, it poses a danger to the Jewish people and also to democracy. I think that's right. I, I think one of the hardest pieces to hold is is the idea that, you know, anti-Semitism doesn't appear out of thin air, right? It is in the air we breathe. It is part of a, a systemic uh, ideology within the United States. It may not be conscious, right? We often think of racism as something conscious, but for most people, actually, racism is very unconscious, right? It is, mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. indirect. It is mostly not intentional, um, but it still functions and serves a purpose. For, for some reason, those of us who are non-Jewish seem to have this idea that if anti-Semitism is not intentional, if it's not, you know, uh, structured out in the open, then somehow it doesn't exist. And because we believe that, I think it makes it hard to understand when anti-Semitism is being used as a dog whistle, right? When we hear the word globalist, when we hear the word Hollywood, when we hear the word media, uh, we forget that these right. are longtime anti-Semitic tropes that were put into play at different times in our society in the United States and, and elsewhere in the world. 
In addition, I, I think it is also hard because uh, we understand when we're talking about other forms of bigotry that they can function and interplay with, with one another, right? We have now come to understand that one can be on the receiving end of racism and still be participating in sexism or misogyny or mm -hmm. in classism. That one can be on the receiving end of racism and still express Islamophobic ideas or or concepts. And we have grown a movement in this country, uh, a movement, I think, and I believe committed to liberatory democracy, people-centered, accountable, and, and transparent government, where we understand that we have to grapple with these other forms of bigotry. And being on the receiving end of one form of bigotry doesn't let us off the hook in terms of how we interplay with others. But it seems to me that when it comes to anti-Semitism, all of those rules suddenly are off the table. And it reminds me of uh, the early days of the anti-racist movement where I would hear um, African-American men say that, well, you know, sexism isn't as important as the racism that we are facing. Um, Islamophobia isn't as important or the nativism ex experienced by the immigrant community is, is not as important. And it's a very siloed way of both looking at uh, bigotry and I think it ignores the threat that anti-Semitism plays in terms of preserving democratic institutions, which I have critiques of, but also understand that they are the best protectors of rights in this society, and they are being whittled away. And in part, how they are being whittled away is that people are being taught that they don't matter because we live in a society of conspiracies, a society of shadows where we are all being manipulated and controlled. In short, the idea that we have no agency to affect the things that are happening in our society every day. And it's just not true. And anti-Semitism becomes the answer for others about why we should not be participating and why they should not be participating. Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, everything that you're saying about anti-Semitism could also be said about um, about other forms of racism, about anti-black racism, um, about Islamophobia, this idea that there are subtle and implicit biases that people don't even realize that they have, that we in many ways are contributing to systems of oppression without even recognizing that we are. And I think what this moment in time that we're living in right now has has gifted us is a great awakening. This is a moment of awareness in which we're finally saying we need to do some interrogation. We need to look at ourselves and see the ways that these implicit biases are actually playing out, not only in hiring practices and in, you know, in, and in policies, but also in, in, in much more subtle and smaller ways as well that end up perpetuating systems that are that are grossly unfair. And I believe that that many of the movements for racial and economic and gender justice, many of the um, uh, uh, many of the people in this work on the left are actually 
doing some of that work when it comes to racism and need to do that work as well when it comes to anti-Semitism. And I think that in our in our Jewish community, we have to continue to push as much as we expect other people to do that work on kind of assessing, analyzing, evaluating, um, engaging their own implicit anti-Semitism. We have to continue to do that work when it comes to the biases that we in the Jewish community hold toward others. And and they're certainly there. And this this work seems to be to me to be so critical. So the thing that I'm inspired by in hearing you talk about this is it feels like there should be a natural em- a, a empathy that that the Jewish community has toward people who are toward uh, people who are in other minority communities and particularly vulnerable or targeted min- minority communities and vice versa there is i think in this moment this very profound and dangerous empathy gap that's happening between groups that feel targeted because everybody's scared um, for good reason, I think. Uh, everybody's concerned about our own safety and about our own rights and dignities. And what I'm inspired by is we are we really are natural allies, and we should be able to build multi-faith, multi-ethnic coalitional spaces that are really attentive to to racism, to anti-Semitism, to homophobia, to transphobia, to Islamophobia, and understand that that our collective liberation really is all tied up in one another's. And we are naturally um, suited to be able to understand um, the way that these struggles are playing out today and to be able to engage one another with empathy and really with love so that we can stand on the same side of history together. I think that that has to start with a hard and fast rule that there is really no room for any of these isms in these coalitional spaces that we're building. And and honestly, there's been, I know that you see this too, but I think one of the things that's hard for me as a Jew who's also a progressive is I see this resistance to engaging anti-Semitism as if it's a real danger or real threat. And, and instead, where we're so attentive to calling out all of these other problematic forms of structural and ideological oppression, there's a kind of resistance to taking anti-Semitism quite that seriously. And what I feel so strongly to be clear is that we cannot fight racism unless we're also fighting anti-Semitism, just as we can't fight anti-Semitism unless we're also fighting against racism and against all of these other forms of racialized hatred um, and, and bigotry. So it seems to me that this is an opportunity for us to build a kind of big tent movement that's rooted in these shared values in which we actually start by simply seeing each other. I think that is so well said, and it, it brings up so many ideas ab- about uh, the need to bring these issues to the table and, and the the challenge around anti-Semitism um, and the unwillingness of uh, leaders and, and organizations within our movements uh, to allow space for it um, is, is, is really undercutting our movements. It leaves us vulnerable to wedge attacks by the right. And, you know, as I have watched this conversation unfold over the last two years within progressive and liberal spaces. I, I have to say that, you know, there's not just a, a, a resistance to it. Um, it. It almost is like a, an arrogant resistance to it. And, um, you know, I don't like to make comparisons, 
Um, but but it almost reminds me of, um, you know, someone being called on something and um, almost like through embarrassment or, you know, I'm going to show you um, almost like a doubling down in the resistance, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it's not a, well, I don't think that issue is important. It's like, I don't think the issue is important, and now I'm going to rub your nose in it. Um, or another way it plays out is, um, oh, yes, um, actually, maybe I was anti-Semitic, um, but there are other issues that are more important uh, mm-hmm. than anti-Semitism. Or I'm facing other oppressions, which means anti-Semitism is, is okay when we stumble into it. And, and what happens ultimately is uh, there are uh, political formations, as there are in the United States, that are hostile to inclusive movements. Um, and uh, wedge politics are as old as politics in the United States themselves. And then we find ourselves wedged um, by those issues. And, and then we're surprised. We're surprised that we got wedged. And so I'm, I think it is time for us to, to step up and uh, we should protect our movements. We should want to be expansive inside of our movements. And we should want to protect um, the importance of democratic institutions um, in this moment. And it seems to me that grappling with anti-Semitism may be the way that we both get practice and experience in doing those three things and understanding anti-Semitism itself only strengthens our movements. I wonder how, if you had to give three examples of how individuals could start that process, they're not all encompassing. But just three things that folks might do in this moment, what would those three things look like? So the first and the simplest thing that I think we can do is work to discern what our mutual interests are, right? Where do we see overlapping interests in this moment of profound moral crisis for our country where we're all concerned about what's happening um, at, at, you know, at the government, at the highest levels and what the implications are, both in terms of policy and in terms of culture, because we do have m- overlapping interests. And so if we start from the place of where are we both hurting and what are we interested in seeing, I think that that's a good place to start the conversation. But then on a much deeper level, we have to work on establishing a kind of curiosity about the other. And I I think that this is something that's missing in the movement, frankly, because we all come in right now with such a strong sense of what's broken and what needs to be done to fix it, but we don't really understand each other yet. We don't really know how to see each other. And I think that part of what's been going on with anti-Semitism is, I can say that for me as a Jew and and, and even as a progressive Zionist, as someone who's in relationship with the state of Israel and really believes, as the founders of the state did, that I want that I yearn for a state that's that's built on the on the the promise of 
of freedom and justice and peace as envisaged by the prophets, you know, by the prophets of our people, ensuring total equality um, of social and political rights to all of its inhabitants. I want I want curiosity when I'm engaging in conversation, not just this black and white entrenchment polarization that you're, you're either with us or you're a white supremacist, you're with us or you're an anti-Semite. Either you align with where I stand or or you're the face of evil, but rather what does it mean to be um, to be somebody who has deep concerns and fidelities that don't exactly match mine? How do we begin to engage in conversation, to be curious, to ask more than we answer, to, to be willing to hear things that even make us uncomfortable? And then the third thing I would say is, I think we have to we have to really look at our moral blind spots because we all have them. And there are things that are just deeply rooted assumptions that we have um, about one another and about the world that this the hour calls us to question those things and to really look more deeply and to get uncomfortable. Um, you know, as Brian Stevenson would say, we have to be in proximity with each other. We have to be in relationship with each other. And we have to be willing to expand our conceptions um, and our perceptions of what the of what the other actually is. There's this Jewish idea that I've been thinking of a, a lot um, lately, which actually originates from the book of Leviticus, which says, it says, that we are obligated to give tochacha, to give rebuke to our neighbor when they um, when they do something that's hurtful or painful to us. And so often, instead, when we're hurt, we, we either suppress the hurt and suppress our own identities in these spaces and stay in without affirming that we've been injured, or we run away and we join the camp on the other side. And instead, what our tradition's saying for thousands of years is, no, you have to engage and you have to say, that was very painful for me. And I want you to see where my hurt is, just as I am committed to not running away from your hurt and from your pain, because together we're both going to be needed in order to build the new America that we dream of, in order to be in, in order to be able to build a place that's truly rooted in the dignity of all people, in which every person is able to love and be loved. And so I think we need to figure out how to give how to give loving rebuke and how to receive it. What does it mean when somebody says the thing that you did either years ago or just now, it was very painful for me. And I want you to understand that because my heart hurts and we ought to be on the same side of history for, as one another. And we actually can't walk together until we're able to look at each other and actually see the humanity in one another. I think that's really, really beautiful. I you know, I just think it is it is so important right now for uh, non-Jews to embrace the Jewish community and liberal and progressive leadership uh, in the Jewish community um, and vice versa. And um, to understand that uh, there's a lot of diversity within Jewish leadership um, and uh, differing opinions. But I think we all align, you know, regardless of whether our main identities or our multiple identities and include our religious identity or racial identity or gender identity or class. I, I think at the end of the day, whether you are a 68-year-old white male living in rural America or you are a 17-year-old Latina, Muslim, trans um, teenager, you know, that 
every, both people, each of them, all of us have the right to live, love, and work free from fear. And what we are all committed to is building a system of governance that allows that to happen, right? Mm -hmm. This is not about uh, uh, an argument of scarcity. This is a vision of abundance. And we don't get to that vision of abundance without putting all systems of oppression on the table and building the political power necessary to either dismantle those systems or to at least put some checks on them in the short term. And until we acknowledge that they actually exist, until the left and progressive organizations acknowledge that anti-Semitism exists and is part of that bundle, we will continue to wander lost in the wilderness. I think I think that's exactly right, and I just and I think this is a good way for us to close. I have this this very strong sense, and I think that many of us do in this time that the forces um, that that are created that have created these oppressive systems and are perpetuating these systems of of poverty and racism and militarism and ecological destruction and all of these things that are so plaguing our country. They need to be. They need to be fought from a from a really strong sense of moral clarity, and from a unity of vision. And we simply can't get there if we can't see each other and if we can't learn how to walk together. And so, I share your vision of what it is that we're working to build together. And I'm so immensely grateful to you for the incredible work that you're doing in helping to bring clarity to these issues. And I really hope that we can meet again in, you know, in a year or two years for this conversation and talk about how these conversations have changed everything. And now we have a new left that's been able to put forward a new vision of what's possible in the country. And it's strong and unified and beautiful. And it makes space for absolutely everyone and honors the dignity of all of us. Eric, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you so much. And it's an honor to lean in with you. And that's it for this week's Crooked Conversation. Rabbi, thank you so much for having that chat today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. See you next week.